Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Katie Stallard, and you're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Thursday, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. And every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Today, I'm speaking to Rana Mitter, the University of Oxford historian, author and broadcaster, whose latest book, which I would highly recommend, is China's Good War, how World War II is shaping a new nationalism. It's 50 years since Richard Nixon went to China to meet Mao Zedong in February 1972. But now there are warnings we may be entering a new Cold War. So it's a good time to look back at the history of that relationship and where it's heading now. So Rana, thank you so much for joining us. I wondered if you could start by taking us back to that time in 1972 and giving us a sense of what was going on in China then and what was, the, what was driving the decision to engage from the Chinese side. Thinking back to half a century ago, 1972, was something very much on my mind just in fact today before I came to speak to you, since I just picked up my latest edition of the New Statesman magazine and saw your really insightful essay about Xi Jinping, the current Chinese leader, and where he comes from. And it's a reminder, reading that essay, that history is tremendously important in understanding the China of today. So 1972 is 50 years ago in terms of time, but in terms of the pace of change in China over that time, it's really light light years of distance away. 1972 was a moment when a door opened between China and the United States, but it's a door that only opened a small crack along the way. It wasn't fully thrown open. What essentially had happened at that point was a couple of geopolitical strands had come together at the same time. Number one was the United States under President Nixon had basically been finding itself for the past few years caught in the quagmire of Vietnam, an Asian land war that it desperately wanted to get out of. And in Beijing, in China, there was a huge amount of turmoil behind the scenes during the terrifying Cultural Revolution. As many listeners will know, but just a reminder, this was essentially a war that Chairman Mao, Mao Zedong, launched against his own political party, the Chinese Communist Party, which ended with horrific scenes such as teenagers being encouraged to beat up their own teachers to school them in the ways of proper Maoist ideology. And it was getting out of hand. So 
both sides knew that the very long-standing diplomatic freeze between China and the US, there'd been no diplomatic relations since the revolution of 1949, more than two decades, in other words. And all of these factors came together with the one other thing that we sometimes forget now that it's no longer with us, the Soviet Union. Both the Americans and the Chinese were deeply wary of the Soviets. The Americans, because of course they were the old Cold War enemy. The Chinese, because even though they were all communists together, in fact they had fallen out, the Chinese communists and the Soviet communists, in the early 60s over ideological matters. And so from the point of view of Washington and Beijing, the time was ripe for a reset of the relationship which had been frozen between the big Asian superpower, China, and the Western superpower, the United States. I think we could sometimes lose in this from the United States, where I'm currently speaking to you from Washington, D.C., how much domestic politics there was on the Chinese side, too, and that there was a real balancing act here for some of the key protagonists. So, for instance, the Premier Zhou Enlai, can you give us a sense of what he was trying to balance at home? Absolutely. The phrase Nixon goes to China has become you know, a catchphrase in American and indeed Western political language, meaning someone making an ideologically absolutely unthinkable move. But there's been far less attention paid to the fact that you could use the expression Zhou Enlai reaching out to America being actually in some ways an equivalent sort of phrase. Zhou Enlai was the prime minister of China at that time, but it's worth just saying that he was much more than that. If there was one figure who was both a die-hard, absolutely bottom-line member of the Chinese Communist Revolution from the hardest days when they were on the run from their nationalist enemies, the, the Chiang Kai-shek nationalist government back in the 30s and 40s, to reaching you know, the heights of the PRC, that person was Zhou Enlai, very, very close to Mao during much of that time. But at the same time, he was also, through most of that time, the single most known face of China's engagement with the outside world. So when there were sort of discrete signals, first of all, from Zhou Enlai with the sort of acquiescence of Mao, who by now was quite old and quite ill, to the United States, and the United States eventually picked up the signals that if an approach were to be made, it would not be rejected. There were people in the top leadership in China who thought this was absolutely appalling. The most famous amongst them had become known by the nickname the Gang of Four. One of the most the most famous, perhaps, was Mao's then wife, Jiang Qing, and three male members of, of, of the Politburo. That term Gang of Four wasn't actually used until after they were arrested after the death of Mao, but it's a convenient term to use. The Gang of Four represented political radicals who wanted no part of an opening up to the capitalist world. And they really pointed the finger at Zhou Enlai and said, you know, why on earth are you doing this? Was there political risk here too from the United States side? China had been represented as red China up until and, and including this point. There was political risk on the part of the Americans, but I think in some ways less than there might have been even 10 years earlier. Nixon was, in a sense, inoculated against being accused of pro-communism because he had made his career as a red baiter. He had won his first seat in the House of Representatives against a congresswoman called uh, Helen Gehagen Douglas, who he accused of being a red. And then he rose all the way to vice president and became essentially the spokesman for American anti-communism in trips around the world, primarily against the Soviet Union, to be fair, rather than China. But nonetheless, his credentials as an anti-communist were impeccable. However, he and Henry Kissinger, his then National Security Advisor, later Secretary of State, while they made the historic move, there's no taking that away from them, in fact, did follow in the footsteps of other 
actors, including politicians from both the Republican and Democratic Party, who by the mid-60s were beginning to say, look, maybe we need to open up a bit. And there are signs that even under Lyndon Johnson, Nixon's predecessor, there were attempts. The problem was it was the middle of the Cultural Revolution. So even if you got on the phone to try and phone up Beijing, who do you call? You can't say, the foreign minister's currently being tortured by a bunch of students. Could you call back in half an hour when he's free again? These sorts of conversations were not very easy to hold. And then in February 1972, the Nixon visit itself, that was something that by that stage looked risky, but actually was well regarded. Certainly the opinion polls after the visit had happened showed that Nixon's popularity and the sense of him as a statesman had really rocketed. So it was a bit of a bet, but it was a bet that paid off pretty well. As we know now, looking back, this would be followed by the establishment of formal diplomatic relations in 1979, and then China's period of reform and opening up under Deng Xiaoping. But how much debate was there on the direction China would take? Was it a given that China was going to open up and engage with the world in the way that we have seen it do since then? One of the mistakes that I think people who are interpreting the overall story of Western-China relations over the last half century can sometimes make is to assume that it was all inevitable. Of course, China was going to open up. Of course, China would adopt market policies and become this huge economic superpower. And of course, it was going to become this authoritarian military state that we we see today. But historians would say that very few things are inevitable. And those events were certainly not amongst them. So let's just take the specifics of the shift in terms of China's political economy. In other words, it's moved from being a sort of Soviet-style command economy and then a somewhat chaotic kind of economy during the Cultural Revolution to becoming essentially a version of what it is now. The Chinese today call it socialism with Chinese characteristics, which is actually a roundabout way of saying a market economy which is under the control of a single party state. And that's a relatively rare, not unique, but relatively rare um, combination to find in the contemporary world. But in fact, the origins of that are tied up with the Nixon visit because the opening to America was also about opening up China's markets, both to buy and sell. The Cultural Revolution was about economic autarky. In other words, that China might be able to make and manufacture everything it wants itself. Now, this sounds particularly piquant because you will know, Katie, that one of the big arguments today in both Washington and Beijing is whether or not both sides can cut themselves from off from each other economically. There's a delicious irony that during the most isolationist time in recent Chinese history, the Cultural Revolution, a whole bunch of top communist economic planners were sitting in rooms in Beijing admitting the reality, which was that no modern economy can operate unless it's having some sort of traffic with the outside world. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both from as little as £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's €1 a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. From the New Statesman World Review comes France Elects, a special podcast series exploring the main candidates and the big issues shaping the campaign to be France's next president. I'm Ido Vok, and over the next two months, I'll be joined by special guests to dissect incumbent Emmanuel Macron's record, his rivals to the right and left, and key issues such as foreign policy and the climate. Just search World Review on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts.
One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really really want it all to work out while you're away. monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You were on the ground in China during the, the subsequent period of greater integration then with China's accession to the World Trade Organization. Can you paint a picture of what it was like then and how important joining the WTO was to, to the broader public in China? It's more than 20 years ago now, so it may be forgotten by some what a big deal it was, not just for China, but for the world trade community, that China, as by at that stage, the world's third biggest economy, I think, and then coming into being the world's second within a short period afterward, would be brought into the international globalized system of trade, of which the WTO, the World Trade Organization, which only came into being after decades and decades of rounds of trade negotiations, the GATT, Doha, you know, all, the, all these sorts of things, it was a huge, great process. And China was a key player as part of that. Now, the dilemma through much of the 1990s, the years of the presidency of Bill Clinton, but also actually the years that followed under George W. Bush, on some things they were clearly opposed, but on this they were very much of the same mind, was bringing China into the system. And essentially for the Chinese, getting into the World Trade Organization, in other words, being treated as a grown-up at the global trade table, became a really important goal. It was a goal for economic reasons. You can understand that China being able to fully integrate as much of its manufacturing economy and then export to as many countries in the world as wanted to take their goods was a huge source of wealth and prosperity. That's clear. What isn't, I think, as well known is that for the Chinese public, particularly the middle class public in Shanghai, Beijing, it also became a, a kind of totem, something to be achieved to show that China had made it in the world, rather like winning the Olympics, you know, that was also awarded in 2001 for the 2008 Games, so seven years in advance. So in a sense, China's entry into the Olympic family 
and the WTO family in the same year was a symbolically really important, important moment. And people were literally wearing T-shirts around saying uh, WTO, give China a chance. In other words, let China in and show it. we'll show you what we can uh, what we can do. It did lead to a certain amount of positive but cautious reaction on the American side. And I'm thinking here of people like uh, Robert W. Zellick, who became president of the World Bank, at that point was uh, Deputy Secretary of State in the US. And he made a speech in 2005, which became a sort of touchstone speech, you might say, both for the Chinese and the Americans, in which he urged China to become a responsible stakeholder in international society. He's always very clear. He didn't say that China was a responsible stakeholder. He said that the price of getting into the WTO and being part of this kind of community was not that China had to turn itself into America, but that it had to play a cooperative and positive role. A decade and a half on, the question is whether or not the challenge that Zelik threw down in that speech about being a responsible stakeholder is something the Chinese have fulfilled, which they would say they have, or something which many in the West, including in America, feel has been violated, which is an increasingly common position in Washington, D.C. Yeah, I think the way you hear that story told here is that the deal was China will be admitted, China will benefit from this system, and then China will change and China will become, quote, more like us. Was that is that a misunderstanding of certainly how the Chinese side saw this working out? I think that view is something that the Chinese certainly never shared. There, there, there are people in China, uh, even now, who want to go to something that reproduces a you know fully multi-party liberalized system of politics. But to be honest, at least in elite positions, they are very few in number. There are certainly much, much wider spectrums of opinion in the Chinese policymaking elite about how authoritarian or how liberal China should be within a one-party system. But there are very few, not none, but very few of, of the people who get to that top level of Chinese politics who would argue essentially for a system that meant that the Chinese Communist Party would lose its monopoly on power. The idea that China was going to change into a democratic society and one that actually instinctively shared all of the liberal values that one assumes most countries in Western Europe will do, I don't think was ever really on the cards. And it's quite hard to find senior Chinese who realistically could be portrayed as sharing that position. And of course, the question over Taiwan, which Beijing considers to be sovereign Chinese territory, but is a self-ruling island democracy, was never resolved. It was put to one side during the normalization negotiations. But are we now seeing that come back into focus as a really critical issue in the relationship? I think the Taiwan issue has not been as important in the US-China relationship, or indeed the West-China relationship, as it is today for certainly, I think, 30 or 40 years, in other words, at the time, maybe not so much around the Nixon visit. I mean, it is the case that when Henry Kissinger visited China as Secretary of State under President Ford uh, on follow-up visits, that Taiwan became one of the sticking points. And indeed, it was something that Jimmy Carter and Cyrus Vance and the other members of that Democratic administration then had to take up and, and finesse. But essentially, the position that both sides came to in 1979 was that, or 78, with the opening up on the 1st of January 1979, was that both sides would agree to disagree to some extent, and also agree that there was one China, but there would be a sort of ambiguity about whether it was the Republic of China on Taiwan or the People's Republic of China 
based in the the mainland and it could all be sorted out later because both sides at that stage Washington and Beijing had a much greater interest in opening up full diplomatic relations and that succeeded well and led to various iconic events most notably uh, Deng Xiaoping the Chinese leader traveling in 1979 to the US visiting Houston Texas and wearing a Stetson at a rodeo you know this sort of moment of uh, cultural connection and then Taiwan essentially although there've been ups and downs in the relationship wasn't a sort of front burner um issue really until the last few years and now that the DPP which is much more pro autonomy and I was going to say although technically it's pro independence in fact its leader the president Tsai Ing-wen has been very cautious very careful about not actually saying that directly out loud because she knows quite strongly that would re- release something possibly quite cataclysmic from the mainland but nonetheless it is clear that taiwan is looking at hong kong where the national security law has you know clamped down the last 2 years on many of the freedoms that people there have taken for granted and essentially asked the question which the mainland has a not found a good answer to and b seems far less interested in answering which is if there were to be any closer relationship how does the mainland guarantee that the freedoms that have disappeared in hong kong wouldn't disappear in taiwan and if the answer to that is well, actually they would disappear then it's very clear why that's not going to be attractive to um a place that has voters who can pick and choose which parties they want to 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 rule them and that obviously in terms of beijing's desire to try and bring taiwan into the fold is just a really difficult barrier to to overcome and one which they have shown very little subtlety or capacity to do right and which the chinese ambassador to washington is now warning could come to military conflict with the united states actually i think that's quite unlikely for other reasons i think the idea of military conflict it's not impossible by any means so we have to be very cautious and make sure that all sides are aware of how cataclysmic a war in East Asia would be in terms of human cost but also economic cost it would make Ukraine if anything happened there look like a much much smaller outbreak however it is the case that the actual physical invasion of Taiwan of course it's certainly possible would actually involve a tremendous amount of effort by the Chinese military that people are not necessarily fully convinced that they could carry out you need to look at and people do look at issues such as economic pressure cyber war and various other tactics that look less traditional than a full scale amphibious attack but might in the end be more effective in uh, pushing back against Taiwan I guess it occurs to me we we started this talking about Nixon standing in front of the Great Wall of China talking about bringing walls down we're now talking about the logistics of of an amphibious assault on Taiwan I guess that that in itself tells you something about um the trajectory of this relationship but let me ask you a very unfair question which is to sum up best kind best kind <laughs> just to sum up 50 years on from what is this what what was it you know it's an overused term but a genuinely historic moment Where are we now? How significant is the current moment? In 50 years time our future podcasters or whatever technology we're using then to talk to each other. Will we be looking back at the current moment at, at 2022 as a as a critical point in the United States China relationship? I think we are at a critical moment actually. I think the moment itself maybe rather than just you know one or two years we might categorize it really as being perhaps the last six or seven years because i think the period essentially with between the end of the presidency of barack obama uh, the presidency of donald trump which is often regarded as something very anomalous in many areas clearly in terms of domestic us politics it really is anomalous but in terms actually of what's been happening with china policy it now looks like more of a sort of continuum of change and now into the early years of course of of, of joe biden 
all of that, I think, marks a moment where two pretty historic things have happened. And I think both of them are now, if not set in stone, at least they're setting pretty hard. On the part of China, ever since the financial crisis of the late 2000s, 2008, 2009, but as China's economy continued to expand and the West in some ways seemed to flatten out, if not exactly sputter, China has become increasingly unconvinced, both at the elite policymaking level and amongst its rapidly growing middle class, that the wider world, particularly America, but actually the wider world more generally, has that much to offer China in terms of something to learn, something to be modeled on, something to to draw on. China's idea of itself as the... Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Pacemaker has really grown at that point. And on the American side, there's a very, very notable slide from the feeling you got even as late as the late 2000s, uh, early 2010s, that essentially China and America weren't going to agree and would have a pretty scratchy relationship, but there were areas of real cooperation, to a feeling in Washington that with almost no exceptions, the United States and China are essentially in oppositional tracks. It doesn't mean that this means that there's a conflict about to happen, but it does mean I think it's very sadly in many ways, that we're talking about a world in which both societies have less contact with each other. And COVID, of course, has been part of that separation too. And while it is, nothing is forever, that certainly seems to be very different from the world that seemed to be opening up in 1972. And I think I would add a final note, if I may, which is that while it is the case, particularly you know those of us in the West, who speak out for liberal values. And I would, for one, say that it's immensely important that the West continues both to hold to and speak out for those values. That should not be incompatible with trying to keep dialogue open at all possible moments, whether it's on military matters, economic matters, or indeed cultural matters. And that it's always important to be talking because talking is always better, almost always anyway, than, than not talking. And that would be my great fear if the two sides essentially find that they have no means of communication whatsoever. We got quite close to that in some recent years. I think it's actually less the case now, but it is a real and present danger that needs to be watched out for. Well, I think that's a good place to to wrap this up. So with that, I'd like to say a, a big thank you, Rana, for joining us here on World Review. This has been the World Review from the New Statesman. You can read all our international coverage on newstatesman.com. 
If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend or even an enemy and rate us and leave us a nice review. The producer has been Adrian Bradley. The team will be back on Thursday. I'm Katie Stallard. Thanks for listening and until next time. Thank you.